Well, good morning, church. Happy Thanksgiving. I'm Scott Weatherford. I'm really glad you're here. I apologize for the video. I felt like we were watching a Bruce Lee movie for, for a minute there. I think there was a little glitch in the audio and the video, and I think, you know, Joe's back there shaking his head thinking, jerk, why did you mention that? You're welcome, Joe. Anyway, uh, it's okay. We got the gist of it. Mitch is my translator. When I go to Latin America, Mitch is the one who translates uh, my nonsense into understandable Spanish. So we're very grateful for Mitch and his ministry, and really cool how God has changed his life. You just got a little bit of his story. I've got to hear all of it. And uh, he is a, a professor at a little school up the road called University of Texas. He, uh, he's a professor of Spanish there. So this kind of neat guy who loves Jesus is, uh, is at the University of Texas. Who knew that God could put a Christian at the University of Texas, right? That's saying that my daughter's a Texas grad, so hook them, whatever. All right. Well, yeah, there we go. All right, got now I have to say to the Aggies, what do you say, Aggies? Yeah, gig them, whoop, what, yeah, what do, you, what do the Florida State grads say? Let me call my lawyer. Okay, anyway. So we're in this series of Encounters with Jesus, and today I'm really excited about uh, this, this talk. I've had a really busy week last week, really busy week. I, I had the privilege of going to Houston, where I was a part of the Southern Baptists of Texas Convention where uh, I got to, to read scripture, to pray, and listen to the Baptist preachers for about two days. It's kind of like, you know, having a colonoscopy or something of that nature. No. Uh, yeah, no. Anyway, okay, move past that. And then Wednesday, I got on a plane, flew to Alabama, and we actually flew to Atlanta and drove to Alabama, and then filmed the next group series uh, for our series starting in, uh, in January. We're going to be going through the book of Luke, nine weeks through the book of Luke, and there's 18 sessions. So the gathering times I'll be teaching, and then the group times will be teaching a little bit more in Luke, and then the God times will invite you, challenge you to read through the whole book of Luke. So that starts in January, so we got that done. And while I was there, I had a chance to meet with a pastor search team, and uh, I was training them on how to find a pastor. So I'm not looking for a job, just so y'all know. But why I say that is I was reminded while I was there how much I love you guys and how grateful I am to be here and to be in Texas. Heck, I couldn't go back to Alabama. I don't even own a banjo. Came from Alabama with the banjo on their knee. Okay, funny joke. I want to challenge you with something. This Christmas, we do this every year. We give an offering to international missions. In fact, it has a name. It's named after a lady named Lottie Moon. She was a missionary uh, who served in China, and they named this offering after her. She actually died in her service to the Chinese people. And every year, we, this church, gives generously to this fund, and we're going to do that again this December. So over and above our giving. In fact, your generosity this year, this year has been amazing, actually outstanding. I want to tell you all, in the very near future, before the close of 2019, we as a church family will be debt-free. Everything will be paid off. Isn't that crazy how good God has been to us and how he's lavished out? Now, don't get too excited about that because we're going to need to build some more stuff. So we'll just say debt-free for just a little while. It's kind of like when your wife pays off that credit card, she's going back to Dillard's, just saying. All right. Anyway, but this is, this is the process. We'll keep you informed of that. But every year we give this. And this year we made a decision, our, our staff and our, our leadership team, the advisory team, said this year we want to get, set a goal of $50,000 that we'll give 
to uh, the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering International Mission Board Southern Baptist Convention. Now, we do that to enable missions to go all over the world, missionaries and, and mission doing the good all over the world through the largest mission-sending agency in the history of the world, which we're a network part of. And we're gonna give 50,000 to that. Anything that's over 50,000, we wanna keep here in a war chest for what we call God Opportunities Internationally. Like if an opportunity bubbles up in Cuba, we have the funds to do that. Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Colombia, uh, Venezuela, anywhere that God is moving, in, mostly in Latin America, because that's kind of where we feel drawn to, that we want to jump in and be a part of that. So you guys pray and consider what you might give to see that happen and that we could do the good that needs doing throughout the world through this little bitty tiny place in Texas who has a big old God and a big old God vision. So you pray about that. Also, I've got some, well, some kind of bittersweet news to share with you. Uh, Jonathan Bickham's been with us for four and a half years leading this gathering, and we love Jonathan. We love Sandra, his family, his children. Uh, several months ago, Jonathan Leftwich, who is the pastor of Fellowship of Plum Creek, called me, and he said, could I talk to Jonathan about joining our staff team and being our contemporary worship leader at our church. And of course, Jonathan, this is gonna get confusing. Jonathan Bickham and Sandra came to us from Fellowship Church. And so this is a going back home for them. And I told Jonathan this, I said, look, I told Jonathan Leftwich this, I said, look, Jonathan Bickham belongs to Jesus. He doesn't belong to me, he doesn't belong to this church. If you wanna be a dirty, rotten dog and steal him, you're welcome to do that. Basically, that's what I said to him. And actually, uh, Jonathan Leftwich and I have a good relationship, a coaching relationship. And so they began to talk, and Jonathan and Sandra prayed, and they accepted the position to go and be the contemporary worship leader at Fellowship of Plum Creek and Kyle, which is way too far for any of you to drive on a Sunday, just so you know. And so he's going there, and he'll start there January, the 1st of January. So uh, we love them. We thank God for them. They're going to be with us for a little while longer, and we're going to have a, a party uh, at their departure, not because they're departing, but between now and then, you need to harass them appropriately. But Jonathan Sander, would you stand up so we can say we love you guys, and thank you, and thank you for who you are and how you serve. Yeah. So Jonathan, you're not going and you're not going far and we love you and you're always welcome back here. And if it doesn't work out with lefty, just let me know, okay? Because, you know, I'm a righty, he's a lefty. So the righty's always right. So that's good. But bless you, buddy. And we'll pray for you. And we're gonna throw a party for him at some appropriate time. Also, another thing, Jonathan desires to be ordained as a pastor and we're gonna join with Fellowship Church to do that as well. So I've got uh, I think 137 questions I'll be sending to you that you can fill out your doctrinal statement, okay? So perfect. You're a math guy, so you deserve it. You deserve a test because you test others, so that'll be good. Encounters with Jesus. This week, sitting in the Atlanta airport, I discovered something about myself. I love to judge people. Now, don't look at me spiritual. I know you do too. That you look at folks, you go, Really? And I, this is one thing I, I've found with our society. Our society, as of late, has really thrown off all restraint. It really, there just seems to be no shame or no hiding, and that's either good or bad. But I have a tendency to kind of look down my ecclesiastical snout and judge people. And I was sitting in the Atlanta airport. I mean, I got convicted. And really, the Lord said, I love these people. I love them. They're a mess. 
I love them. And I've got an encounter waiting for every one of them because I'm not willing that any should perish, but I'll come to repentance. So what you need to do, Bubba, is lose the judgment and put on the love. Quit looking at people and, and judging them based on what you, ought, they, what you think they ought to be and you let me love them and do what I want to do in and for and through them. You see, God is a God of the divine encounter. I've had with God. Many of you have had them with God. And perhaps today is your day to have one with God. But he loves people. And he sets up an opportunity to get face to face with them. Because he's a personal God, a loving God. And get this, y'all. He deals with you individually, personally, uniquely. The encounter is similar, similar, but the results are far different because we are far different people. Each one of us are uniquely different. This, today, this morning in my news feed, I was going through my news feed, and I saw, do you guys know who Stephen Colbert is? He, he hosts the, the, I think it's the Tonight Show or Late Night or something, something I'm too old to stay up and watch. When it comes on, I go, what am I doing up? I turn it off and go to sleep. But Stephen Colbert is not exactly what I call a role model. He's just not. But I read an article that he was a, an atheist. This is his words. He was an atheist. And when he was 22 years old, someone gave him a green Gideon Bible on the streets of Chicago. He cracked that open. He said it was so cold it literally cracked when he opened it. And he read the words of Jesus and they jumped out at him. And he returned to his Catholic roots. A divine encounter was Stephen Colbert. Now, I'm thinking he needs to go through the next step classes. You know. But if God loves Stephen Colbert enough to, enter, to invade his life on the cold Chicago streets, he loves me enough to speak to me in my smugness, in my elitism, in my churchianity. He loves me enough to encounter me right where I am and to speak to my life. Now, this morning... We're going to conclude this encounter with Jesus, these, this sermon series. And I hope you've enjoyed it. If you missed one, you can go online and, and, and watch them. We're going to look at an unusual encounter, an uncommon encounter God had with a guy that's kind of like us, a guy named Saul, who would become Paul, who would write the majority of the New Testament. And how God specifically stepped into his life and called him and changed him through a divine appointment, through a divine encounter. A few years back, we were, I was in Israel, my first trip there, and I went to the city of Jericho. And in Jericho, they were touring around, and the tour guide took us to the sycamore tree. And some of you know this story that Zacchaeus climbed up in a sycamore tree to see Jesus. And he was, you remember the story, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He wasn't the shortest man in the Bible, Nehemiah. Okay, but anyway, he climbed up in the tree and the Bible says this, and I missed this until I read the scripture. And when Jesus had reached the spot, he looked up in the tree and he called him, come down, I'm going to your house. I'm gonna change your world, come down. When you reach the spot. And I think today you are at the spot to meet Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you're gonna to say to us in your word this morning. And I pray that you speak through me, that not be my words or my thoughts, but Father, not even the pattern 
of my thoughts, but Father, your truth that will lead us to discover who we are and how you're invading our lives and how you're encountering us. And I thank you that you love us so much you're not gonna live life without us, but you invade us to love us, to change us, to save us. Thank you, Jesus. Speak. We, we listen with, with an eagerness and expectation. And we pray this in your strong name. Amen. Now go ahead and take out your notes. You might want to jot some things down. Might say some things that are worth remembering that's going to uh, help you become more like Christ. You've heard me say this before. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. And that gives a lot of you hope because some of you have stumbled out of the gates. You've started poorly. But here's the first thing I want you to hold on to, okay? Your past does not limit Jesus. Your past does not limit Jesus. Jesus. None of us are so broken, so maligned, so sinful that God cannot reach them. After the the last gathering, a young man approached me and said, you know what? When you said that, it convicted me because I've got a couple of friends who say, I am going to hell and I know it. I'm so broken. God can't reach me. He said, now I'm determined to build relationship with, with them and teach them the truth that our God is a loving God, an everlasting God, a God who could take a broken, hot mess and make it a holy, whole message. But God, you're not too broken. Your, your past is not too marred. Our, in our church in Canada, we had the, the privilege of working with some, some ladies Tara did in particular, my wife did in particular, some ladies who were involved in the sex trade. Some of them were still active in prostitution. Some were in exotic dancing. It's hard for Tara to tell a, a, a young girl who had two little kids she needed to quit dancing because she was making $1,500 a day dancing. It's hard to tell her to stop doing that and, and subside in whatever kind of menial job she could have. But nonetheless, she did. And, and we had a, a corner, it was kind of over in this section, had this huge auditorium over in this section. We call it the broken corner. Because my friend Travis would invite all these people to come, and they would come, and they would hear the gospel, and Jesus would save them. He'd save them. And we'd have conversations with them. We'd build lives, and we'd encourage them, and we'd watch God turn that mess around because your past does not limit Jesus. Listen to this encounter with Saul. You talk about a train wreck. Saul was a train wreck. Saul was a mess. He didn't think he was. He's a lot like us. He was arrogant and entitled. Like me sitting in the Atlanta airport, smug and judgmental. But God was moving in his life. Meanwhile, Saul, this is Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every birth, with every breath, and eager to kill the Lord's followers. Now, you read that, you say, what's going on with this guy? Well, I'll tell you what was going on with this guy. He was suffering with what's called righteous indignation. Now, the Bible talks about righteousness. That means being mad over a just cause. He thought he was perfectly legitimate in having this anger against these people. They, these people that were following Jesus, they called them the way. That was the new name of the of the sect of Judaism called the Way. Now, there was other sects of Judaism. Uh, that's with a T, not with an X, uh, of Judaism. 
And these sects, one of them was Pharisees, one was Sadducees, one was Zealots, one were Essenes. And so it wasn't new. It was kind of like a denomination, you know, the Baptists and the Methodists and the Lutherans and the Presbyterians and the Catholics and kind of all had their different opinions, but they were all coexisting under the umbrella of Judaism. And so they just named this the way. Paul was so righteously indignant against them that he wanted to kill them. Now, is it sinful to be righteously indignant? No, it's not. The Bible said, actually, Paul wrote this in Ephesians 4. He said, be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And that first word, anger, be angry, but do not sin, is a word for anger that means righteously indignant. You're mad for a just cause. Paul thought he was mad for a just cause. The second word for anger that I called wrath there, it means selfishly motivated anger, that, that you don't let the sun go down on that. In other words, I get mad at Tara because I'm selfish, I should never look at her and say, you make me so mad. What I should look at her and say, you reveal to me how selfish I really am. That usually will end the argument. That and yesterday you were right all along. That, that usually, that's usually what I say all the time. But anyway, it's that, that sin. So Paul had this, this anger, Saul had this anger, and this anger was leading him to sinful behavior like murder. He just had murdered Stephen. The first martyr in the Bible, he just had him stoned. Now, stoning, they didn't stand there and chunk rocks at him. That's not what they did. What they did with stoning, they would push them off a cliff or a high place, usually over 15 feet. And if that didn't kill them, they threw rocks down on top of them, large stones, until they were dead. That's what a stoning was in the Old Testament. Not, you know, everybody over there was a major league pitcher. They were picking up rocks and throwing it at each other. They were using gravity to do a grievous thing. But this is what happened. So he went to the high priest. He was so mad he went to the high priest. And he requested letters addressed to a synagogue in Damascus, asking for their cooperation, the arrest of any followers of the way. Remember, that's what I call this sect that he found there. He wanted to bring both men and women. And this is unusual because in Judaism, women didn't count. But with Jesus, women do. And what was happening, this was so makes Paul so repulsive. He was so repulsed. Saul was so repulsed at this. It wasn't just Jewish men. It was Jewish women. And they were finding an egalitarianism in the belief system. Paul, being a misogynist, was mad because women were being elevated because Christ elevates women in equal access to salvation. But he puts us in complementary roles in the body of Christ. And so he was indignant, and he asked for permission to arrest them. Let me finish reading this passage. And he, he wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Now, his intent was to bring them back, have them tried, and have them executed. He was a bad dude. Saul was enraged, and he was far from God. And you think, how could God ever reach an enraged, distant heart? Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing. I told Jonathan as he's walking on the stage, I love the last song we sang. Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing. No one is out of God's reach. You can't outsend God. You can't outanger God. You say you're distant from God. You may be distant from God, but He is not distant from you. He's closer than you think. Your children cannot distance themselves so far from God that He can't reach them. Your enraged heart, your angry heart. I want to tell you this about anger. Anger is the acid to all your relationships. 
Some of you live with an angry person. And that anger, all it does is destroy relationships. You know what I'd say to you? Get rid of it. How? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Deal with your junk. Quit spewing acid because God wants to cleanse your heart. How does he do it? With forgiveness and grace. Oh, wow. You see, God can breed any gap. And here's the deal, y'all. We're all broken. Did you know that? Now, you might have walked in this room and you looked around and said, oh, everybody's got their act together here. No, they don't. They're all a dumpster fire. We all are. Aren't we? That we are broken people. We are the fellowship of the broken. One of the problems I deal with with churches, in fact, I told this church I was dealing with the other day, I know this church, and I said, I'm going to tell you something. The problem that's wrong with your church right now is that you are elite. You think you're better than everyone else and you have an elite attitude. And they went, how dare you say that to us? I said, well, I'm getting on a plane and I'm leaving. That's how dare I say it to you. (laughs) But you got to deal with that. And that arrogance and that elitism, that anger creates acid that destroys. But God is able to bridge that gap and we're all broken. Listen to what Paul later says to Titus. Now, Paul, this guy's a murderer. This is what he says to Titus, who was one of his, uh, his, one of his mentees. He was mentoring him. And he was a pastor in a church on Crete. That's where we get our word for Cretans, people that are bad behaved. Titus was their pastor. Whew, tough assignment. Once we too were foolish and disobedient, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. I think that sounds like anger. But when God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. So I want to say this to you people, because I love you. Your brokenness can become God's pathway to your salvation. It becomes a pathway to your salvation that when you realize that God wants to give you a new life. Now, here's the, here's the cool thing about God. God gives you a new life, but he doesn't make you a clone of everybody else who's given a new life to. God keeps the original integrity of who you are as a person, your gifts, your talents, your abilities, that he enhances them with his spirit He forgives you, he restores you, he illuminates your mind, and he gives you a new reason, a new purpose, but you're still you. You see, there's no other Scott Weatherford in the world. Can I get a witness? Yeah, thank goodness, that's right. But see, God's taken me and with who I am, and he saved me by his grace, and he fills me with his spirit that he might use me for his glory and not for mine. Let me give you a clear example. Uh, last year, about this time, Tara and I bought a house down the road. And it was a nice house, but we, you know, a wife wants a different house. She wants to put her touch on things. You know what that means? Money. That's what that means. <laughs> and so she, we remodeled that house, but it maintained the character of the home. Now, some of y'all, we need to tear you down to the foundation and build you over. And some of y'all just need a little paint, but Whatever. God wants to renew you and restore you. 
restore you. That there's not a mess that God can't turn into a message. There's not a misery that God can't turn into a ministry. There's not a life that God can't rebuild. In the last gathering, the early one this morning, Dan led us in a song that I remember singing back in the 90s. We sang in our church in Texas. The reason I remember this song, it's the song called I'm Forever Grateful. I'm forever grateful to you. I'm forever grateful for the cross. I'm forever grateful to you that you came to seek and save the lost. And as Dan sang that, I was reminded of something. There was a couple in our church. Um, they were a mess. She had been married four or five times. He had been married, but he started an affair with her while he was still married to his first wife. And that, that family broke up and he married her. And they were notorious throughout town about being who they were. And they came to our church and they got saved. And I remember singing that song one Sunday. I looked out there and I saw them holding hands and tears streaming down their face because God had changed them. This guy went on to become a pastor and pastored a church until his death. And she was a faithful, loving wife, mentoring women who had made bad decisions. You see, God's a God of restoration. He's not the God of merely condemnation. Listen, he brings conviction so you'll get saved. He doesn't bring conviction to torment. He gives, brings conviction to bring deliverance. Wow. I'm forever grateful. I remember the spot where my buddy found Christ. You see, we had a piece of property that our sponsor church, First Baptist, had given us, and we were talking about building a building on that piece of property, and that piece of property was basically a swampland. And Tara and I were living in a parsonage on that property. Do y'all know what a parsonage is? It's a house nobody would ever live in that we give to the preacher to live in. And rats running through the ceiling at night. You know, we got accustomed to the rat race. And, and we were standing in the yard of that, and I was talking to him. He was worked for the builder who was talking to us about building a building, and he, and he trusted Christ that, in that place. I watched it. I was an eyewitness. I heard him. I saw him. And I knew he had been changed. And I knew he could not escape his reputation other than redemption. And he escaped it through redemption. And so did she. Wow. Saul, who would later become Paul, escaped his reputation as a murderer through redemption. Wow. And I love the fact that Jesus set this up. You see, Jesus sets up the uncommon encounters. As he approached Damascus on his mission, I'll go on to verse three. A light from heaven suddenly showed down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? 
Someone asked me last night, why did Saul cry out to the Lord if he didn't know who the Lord was? When you see the word Lord here, it wasn't talking about the Lord Jesus because he didn't know who it was. It was a title of respect, like, yes, sir. No, sir. He was responding because when a light speaks to you from heaven, you'd kind of like to be respectful, wouldn't you not? Who are you, sir? Could another way to translate this. And he said this. The voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you were persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. That's it? Now, the one's companions with him, they heard, they saw the light, but they didn't hear the voice. Saul heard the voice and responded. Later, in his testimony, he would give three times again to, to influential leaders. He would tell the same story. And he'd talk about hearing the voice of Jesus. He had talked about being struck blind. But in this account, you don't hear that he was struck blind. But reading, you find out he was. That Paul had had an experience, Saul had an experience with God that had left him forever changed. And he was struck down. God set this up. He couldn't do it on his own. Why? Because you can't come to Jesus unless he sets up the appointment. Why? Because you're dead. Now, if you're here today and you're hearing this, or you're online, you're hearing this, God has set up an appointment to wake you up from being dead, to bring you back to life. Listen to what Paul says to the church at Ephesus. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and many sins, it was you, it was me. But Jesus calls the dead. He raises the dead. And I'm a dead man who's been brought back to life, life in Christ. Listen to what Jesus said. For no one could come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws them to me. It takes the initiation of Jesus. Jesus is confrontive. He is not passive. He doesn't sit back and wrings his hand. Ah, oh, one day they'll run into me and I will tell them about who I am. No. He invades our lives and he confronts and he always confronts with these things. He confronts with his righteousness and your unrighteousness. He confronts you with his holiness and your brokenness. He confronts you with love. He confronts you with mercy. He confronts you with judgment only to exonerate you. He confronts you offering you grace. And through the Holy Spirit, he awakens you to your need so you may respond to him, to him. And Jesus expects a response. Paul said, Saul said, who, who are you? Well, what should I do? And he responded to the Lord. Now, I want to say this to you because you need to get this. Jesus will not be ignored. And some of you have had encounters with Jesus that you ignored but listen, to quote the great theologian Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll be back. And he'll be back to confront you again and again because he's not willing any should perish, but all come to repentance. And he confronts. And he confronts. And he confronts to make you different. And his encounters always brings about one thing, Restoration. Restoration. Now, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. Now, this is the second Ananias mentioned in the book of Acts. 
The first Ananias is mentioned earlier, and he was married to a woman named Sapphira. And they lied to the church about their generosity, and God killed them. Don't let that happen to you. That's messy, and it's like gets the law involved. Don't let that happen to you. But God killed them because they lied. And so, but this is another Ananias. He's a believer living in Damascus. And he was a Jew, and he had followed the way, he had followed Jesus, had probably heard Philip preach the gospel and responded to the gospel. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to the straight street. I have a friend of mine who grew up in the straight street at Damascus. Kind of cool that he, he was, grew up there. And to the house of Judas, and go there and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. And I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he could see again. Now, I read this, and there's a lot of things in this passage. You read it in black and white, and you miss really the power of this. You miss the power of it. So I want to kind of pull it back and put some color in it so you can see. You see, God loves to get your attention. Adversity is often the pathway to get your attention. When you're blind and in a cheap hotel in Damascus, you're probably going to pray. Some of y'all look at your checkbook today and you're praying. Like it's the middle of the month and there's more to it. And you can't shoot out a text to daddy and say, daddy, I need some cash. Like it's known to be happened in my family. But Paul was desperate. Saul was desperate. And God loves to use adversity. Now I've written this down, so I hope you'll catch it. And I want to read it to you. Saul's desperate prayer while blind. Saul knew that being blind took away his position as a Pharisee. It took away his ability to even go to the temple. You see, in order to be a Pharisee, and he probably was on the Sanhedrin council, which, because he says a couple of times in his epistle, he raised his hand as if to vote, and that probably was on the Sanhedrin council. In order to be on the Sanhedrin council, there's a couple of things that were required. First of all, he had to have the whole Old Testament memorized, all of it. He also had to have a wife and an oldest son. You you know Paul didn't ever mention a wife in his epistles because something happened. Either she died or she left him because he started following Jesus. We don't know. We don't know. We just know that God uses all kind of folks, even single folks, just so you know. And so Paul had this experience, and he knew that being blind took him out of the temple because you could not go to the temple if you had any kind of physical problem if you had an affliction, if you have a wound, if you had an open sore, if you were blind, if you were a leper, if you, you, you had brokenness, you could not go to the temple. You couldn't be in the presence. He lost his identity when he lost his sight. Now, guys, I want to talk to you. Girls, y'all don't listen, okay? Y'all take a nap or whatever. But guys, I want to talk to you a second. Guys, we do this. We get our identity by what we do. We don't get our identity by, uh, by to whom we belong. We get it by what we do. Guys, yesterday I was in the Atlanta airport and I was standing in this unbelievable, long, pre-TSA check line. It's supposed to speed things up. There's a bazillion people there. I mean, it looked like the Hebrew children crossing the Red Sea. There's a bunch of people. And so being the loving, patient guy I am, I complain. Like, what the heck's going on here? Don't they, won't they open up another line? You know, meow, meow. Crying like a little cat. 
And the guy in front of me, he turns around and says, yeah, this is unbelievable. I said, yeah, good. And he says, he looked at me and said, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a lawyer. That's why I'm complaining. No, I didn't, I didn't say that. Yeah, so that was for Colin. Um, I, said, I said, I'm a pastor. And uh, he said, oh, I don't want to go to your church. No. And, and so he, he told me about the church he tends. I knew his pastor. We, we had a little nice little conversation. And I asked him what he did. I never asked his name. He never asked my name. I didn't ask him if he was married. I didn't ask about his kids. I didn't ask him. About, I, I didn't care because, guys, we get identity by what we do. You know what, guys, that's called stupid. Because we need to get our identity from King Jesus and not our vocation. Huh. All right, girls, you can listen again. Girls, you get your identity from your relationships. You know, I will tell you something else. You tie your spiritual condition to your husband, you're in trouble. Just saying. Can I get a witness, girls? I mean, some of y'all elbowed him just then. If you, I want to get a little further. If you tie your spiritual vitality condition to the behavior of your adult children, that's called stupid. Because they will break your heart. You got to get your identity from King Jesus, both men and women. Paul sat there in his despair. He had lost everything, and that's a great time for God to do something. When you run out of everything, God's got something brewing. Something brewing. And I love this. I'm sure as Paul sat in that seedy motel on the straight street, blind, he thought about Stephen, the guy he had just martyred. And he listened to the plate in the head, the debate Stephen had about going through the whole Old Testament, showing the gospel, and how Stephen had connected the dots. And Paul, being this brilliant theologian, was going, wow, he was right here, he was right here, he was right here. It started replaying and started building up. Even the testimony in Stephen's death, God was using for his glory. You see, God doesn't waste these times. You see, Jesus had a plan for Saul. He has a plan for you. I found this to be amazing. I thought about this a lot. Why did God pick Saul? Why did God do that? He had Peter, James, John, and the other 12 disciples where Judas had his hangups, but he had the others. That was funny, too. Right again. Yeah, it wasn't that funny, was it? Okay. But uh, the other guys, they were ignorant, uneducated men, but they'd been with Jesus. Saul, the most brilliant theological mind to ever live, Jesus picked him to bless you. To bless you. I think that's pretty amazing. You see, Jesus took him and remodeled him, renewed him, took him down to the studs, pulled up the floor, redid the plumbing and the electrical, and he made him a new man with all the brilliance of the man who was before. I think it's amazing, but I also think amazing that God had a plan for Saul and involved somebody else. And that guy's name was Ananias. I could only imagine when Ananias had this vision, he went, uh, wait, what? 
I'm going to go see the guy that's been killing Jews and uh, Christians in Jerusalem. <gasps> really, God? Here am I, Lord, send him. <laughs> send me. But Ananias obeyed. Listen to what happened. So Ananias went in and found Saul. He laid hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Baptized. And afterwards, he ate some food and regained his strength. I encourage you to go back and read this whole account. You see, Ananias was a hero. It's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. I imagine several years later when Paul was holding a tent revival in Antioch. Ananias was sitting by his wife and said, that's that old boy I baptized right there. Right there. That's the one right there. You know, I've got a few of those in my life. When God does a marvelous thing, I just get to be a part of it, get to be an eyewitness to it, get to, get to participate. I said, yeah, that's, that's, that's right there. I was there. Got to see it. Got to see it. You see, God wants to use you as a part of his redemption story. Maybe you're a Saul that needs to come to Jesus. Maybe you're an Ananias who needs to encourage a Saul who's come to Jesus. But God's got a plan for you and me. He's got a plan for us. Maybe we are a church of Ananiases that God can use that we might create the spot where people come to Jesus because people come to Jesus best on the arms of a trusted friend. And then we live in transformation. Paul stayed with believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began to preach about the Jesus in the synagogue, saying he indeed is the Son of God, because all everything came together. The Holy Spirit came and illuminated his mind, and it's Saul who became Paul with, oh my gracious, listen to this. And he couldn't wait to share it. He wrote many books about it. He just couldn't, he couldn't help. He said, I found this. And this guy who was a Pharisee who would never, he considered a Gentile less than human became the pastor to the Gentiles. It's crazy because that's what God does. And all who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the man who caused this such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem? Of course, you could read through the book of Acts, and we're going to teach through the book of Acts next year, and you'll see how God continued to shape Paul. He continued to grow Paul. and continued to, to make Paul what Paul was supposed to become. You see, when Saul became Paul, when Saul came to Jesus, he came all the way. Did you? Did you? Or did you just come part of the way? I'm going to go, I will give my heart to Jesus so I can go to heaven, but I ain't giving nothing else. I'm not going to give you my time or my talent or my treasure. I'm going to get, I'm going to do that. I'm not going to give you my gossiping mouth or my judgmental heart. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take my gifts and use them for his glory. I'm not going to do that, but I will go to church. I'm going to hear that preacher preach, take a nap or talk to my friends or eat a cookie. I'm not going to come all the way. Jesus wants all of you, not part of you. He wants complete devotion, not partial hat tipping. So you have to remove the barriers from your life that keeps you from following Jesus completely. 
Maybe it's your judgmental attitude like mine. Maybe it's you're just too stinking busy doing stuff that doesn't matter. Or maybe it's anger, resentment, bitterness, unforgiveness. Maybe it's the past that Satan has been poking you with. Maybe you've been trying to vindicate yourself when you need to let it go and let God do the vindication. What's keeping you from following Jesus? Living the life change. Because encounters with Jesus change everything. And he set them up. And today, I think some of you have reached the spot. I can remember the day I trusted Christ. I remember the day of the divine encounter. I also remember a bunch of other ones. I remember one at 9, one at 15, one at 21, one at 32, one this morning when I reminded myself, Jesus, I'm yours. Maybe today's your day to see Jesus and let Jesus change you.